Father, that uh, final line there is pretty profound to me, uh, that you were shielding us sinners with the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, from your own wrath that was uh, to be poured out for sin. Father, we thank you for that. Lord, we're so grateful that we can gather together this evening and spend time in your word and spend time in worship and spend time in fellowship. Father, we think of all the people the world over that have gathered together today. Lord, the the greater body of Christ, those who have been a part of your kingdom, that they've been in your word today. Lord, we hope all of it is received by you as a sweet aroma of worship. Lord, I'm thankful for other churches. This evening, I want to pray for a formerly First Congregational Church, but now a Crosspoint Fellowship Church with Pastor Kevin Frank. Lord, I'm thankful for him, uh, thankful for the chance that I get to pray with him on a fairly regular basis, and uh, just a, what a blessing to see him leading that church that at one time uh, was not following you. That was a church that was no longer in your word, and yet uh, now uh, answered prayers uh, that they're back to, uh, to, to hearing your word and to proclaiming your word. I thank you for that, Lord. I pray uh, that the people of that church would be good soil, uh, that it would be a word that would bear fruit in their life and bear fruit in the city of Cheyenne. Father, we also thank you for the missionary groups that we support. I think of Child Evangelism Fellowship and uh, would pray for uh, Duane Bazinet and for his wife, Corinne. I know that they're uh, busy right now in preparation for what work they will be doing this summer. I know they just had their winter blast event and so, Lord, I pray that you would be giving them wisdom and insight in how to lead that group in this upcoming year. Lord, we pray that you would continue to bring kids to salvation through the work that they do, that you would continue to raise up these young kids to be these teenage leaders, and that those teenage leaders, Lord, would someday just be leading in their churches. Lord, we just thank you for all that goes on there in discipleship. Father, we I would pray also for the ministries of our church. I'm thankful for our Stevens ministry. Uh, Lord, I'm thankful for uh, Pastor Tom and his uh, leadership of that and the others that have joined together to form that team of ministers. Uh, Lord, I would pray that you would help them to continue uh, at a time right now where uh, there's a lot of people who are lonely and in need of companionship and friendship. Lord, I pray that you would be able to use them as, uh, as ministers of the grace of the gospel, uh, as, as friends, as uh, people that can mourn with you and grieve with you and laugh with you. Father, I would pray that you would be inspiring others to be invested in similar type ministries of caring for uh, people who are kind of the, at times, uh, the, the most needy amongst us. And Lord, we also thank you for your word. I'm so excited to be able to preach it from week to week and so blessed to see the things that you've taught me over the years and that you continue to do through the word Uh, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be with us tonight, that distractions in my mind would go away, and instead I could just focus exclusively on uh, bringing your word to people, and that the people who would hear the word would uh, find guidance for their life, they would find direction from you tonight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, well, good evening, everybody. Glad that you guys are here. Glad we have the chance to be able to offer this service right now as a church, and so I do want you, though, to go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 23. Uh, If you do not have a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. Someone will bring one to you so you can follow along with us. You know, make sure I'm not making this stuff up as I go. That's all important. 
Uh, but we're working our way through the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, we've been looking primarily at the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies, that Jesus was the fulfillment of those things. Uh, however, this last couple of weeks, we've been looking at the last week of the life of Jesus, uh, and in particular, his confrontation uh, with the religious leaders, focusing in primarily on the Pharisees. Uh, that actually got me thinking a little bit. Uh, this question came to my mind, why is it that the Bible records so many examples of Jesus confronting the religious leaders of his day? Uh, think of it in terms like this. Certainly, there were bigger problems in the world than just this group of religious leaders. Uh, you're under the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was involved in things that even uh, people today uh, who would, we would consider kind of way out there in the world of sin, they would look at the things that the Roman Empire was doing and saying, that's just nasty. Like, you just shouldn't be involved in those types of things. Uh, there was corruption like we haven't seen here. Uh, there was brutality. There was all kinds of miserable things going on in the world around them. And Jesus certainly confronts sin in Scripture. But what I'm just fascinated about is just the amount of time. It just comes up over and over and over in the Gospels that Jesus focuses his attention on these religious leaders. So I came up with my two answers to this question. You might come up with some better ones. The first is this. Because they are the religious leaders, they were supposed to be rightly representing God to the people. And if they don't rightly represent God to the people, then the people will have a distorted view of God. So first and foremost, he's upset with the religious leaders because they had a, they had a great responsibility and they weren't fulfilling it rightly. But what's interesting is those guys that he was confronting, they're all dead and gone. They've been gone for 2,000 years practically. So why did he record those things? Couldn't he have just said the religious leaders were an issue? No, I think that he recorded it in this way, and so much of his uh, gospel messages surrounding these things so that we don't become like those religious leaders who were living a life of hypocrisy. So one of the things I did this week as I was going through this, uh, second service I misspoke, I said I, I did an exercise. I don't exercise. What I did instead was I did a spiritual exercise where I uh, put my name in wherever it's talking about the Pharisees in this passage, in this chapter, and I substituted my name in just as a chance to examine my own life to see if maybe I'm becoming like those guys. And so it uh, might be something you guys can do for yourself as well as we read through this. Uh, but just recognize what is happening here. Jesus is going to bring at this point some of his strongest rebukes uh, against these religious leaders. And this has been kind of an ongoing debate that he's been having with them throughout his ministry, but it's intensified here at the end of his ministry. So uh, chapter 23, verse 1. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying... The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds. For they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. So Jesus, in this case, he is confronting the Pharisees, but what's fascinating is he's not talking to the Pharisees. 
He's talking to the crowds. He's talking to his disciples. Now, in previous confrontations, the crowds, the disciples were there, but he was directing his attention at the Pharisees. At this point, it tells us he's actually directing his attention to the crowds and his disciples. He's talking not to the Pharisees. He's talking about the Pharisees here. And he's bringing this as kind of a stiff or a stern warning for his own disciples and for the crowds of the Jews that have all gathered together. And there would have been huge crowds at this point. This was the time of Passover. So you had all those religious Jews in the entire world were under God's law that they were to come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. So everybody is coming to Jerusalem who was Jewish at this time. There was probably millions of people trying to just uh, inundate this one area of the world just so they could worship God. And in the midst of that is where Jesus is bringing these teachings. He's bringing these concepts out to them. So uh, his first deal, his first issue that he takes up with them is in verse 2. That is that they have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Well, the chair of Moses was a, a literal seat in the synagogues. This is where the guy who was kind of the most respected of the rabbis, kind of the most respected teacher, it was a seat of honor. And essentially the guy that sat there uh, would be the one that would explain the law to the Jewish people. It wasn't like today where we can just open up our own Bible. We can just go to the internet. We can hear from hundreds of different teachers. That's not what they had going on. Most of them didn't have their own copies of the scripture. The copies were held at the synagogue. And so this guy would be the one that would speak into the people's lives. Well, what he's saying here about the Pharisees, it wasn't that uh, he said that the people of the synagogue looked at you and said, you're the one who deserves this seat. He's saying to the Pharisees that they seated themselves there that they chose that seat for themselves. They've put themselves in this position. And I think uh, beyond that, he's not talking about the physical seat. He's talking about the spiritual representation of who Moses was. In the Old Testament, Moses was the mediator between God and man, much like Jesus is in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, it would say uh, that God would speak to Moses and Moses would speak to the people. And if the people wanted to hear from God, they would speak to Moses and Moses, or if the people wanted to, to, to bring something before God, they would bring those things to Moses who would speak on their behalf before God. He was the mediator between the people, so much so that God even says of Moses that when you speak, it will be to them as if God is speaking. And here the Pharisees have seated themselves there. They've put themselves in this position that they're going to be the ones who are between God and man, that they're going to be speaking to the people for God. It's a pretty important position no matter how they got it, whether it was chosen for them or they chose it for themselves. Well, the problem was they were actually pretty good teachers. They were just really bad at following their own teaching. He says in verse 3, All that they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. The issue that Jesus had wasn't with the things that they taught. As they were teaching the Old Testament, the teaching the, the law of Moses, that was a good thing. And certainly the people who were hearing the teaching about the law of Moses were supposed to do the things that Moses was asking them to do. The issue with the Pharisees is they weren't living it out in their own lives. And you'll recognize as you go through this passage uh, where that really comes down to is they actually didn't love God. They loved receiving the praise of people. They weren't teaching these things. They weren't doing these things as an act of worship towards God. They were doing those things as an act of self-worship. As an act, as he's going to call it later, of self-indulgence. That they appreciated too much the praise of men. Or as he says in verse 5, to be noticed by men. 
Another way he says it in verse 4 there is that they've, they've tied heavy burdens and laid them on people's shoulders. It's just burdens that they're unwilling to move themselves. So as they were laying all these heavy burdens of the law on people's shoulders, they weren't necessarily living them out themselves. Well, at least not in the most important of ways. You'll see here in verse 5 where he says that they do all their deeds to be noticed. It says that they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. Now, you may not know what a phylactery is, but it's connected to the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, there's a section that's called the Shema or the Great Shema. And all the Jews were required to memorize this section of Scripture. And the intent as you read through it is is a number of things. It's supposed to be on the doorposts of your house. You're supposed to talk about it with your children in the morning, in the evening, and throughout the day. It's supposed to be center or the focus of your life. So much so that Jesus uses this, or I'm sorry, God, in the Old Testament uses this example, the Shema, and he says, you need to bind this on your hands and wear it as a frontlet on your head. Now, I think God was speaking more metaphorically. The things that you do with your hands should be about loving God, about expressing your love and your worship towards God. The things that are the frontmost in your mind should be the things about loving God. But the way it played out is they turned it into a religious symbol. And so they would take a little portion of scripture that says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And they would tie that up on their hand and they had these leather straps that they would tie up their arms. And they would say, it's on my left so that it's close to my heart. And then they would take a little box and they would put that same section of scripture on there and they would tie it like a headband on their head. Well, here's the deal. The Pharisees had gotten to the point where they were like, I want everybody to recognize how much I love God. And the way I'm going to do that is to get a bigger phylactery box on my head. And so they would just be walking around, they'd have this box on their head, and they would see that as they walked down the street, one of their neighbors had a bigger box on his head. So they would go back to the phylactery factory, and they would say, I need a bigger box. I need a bigger phylactery box. And so it just would get bigger and bigger and bigger as a representation to the world how much they loved God. And everybody would go, would you look at the phylactery on that guy? Wow. He must really love God. But of course, that's not the way we demonstrate our love for God. If you love God, people will begin to recognize you as a person who loves God. It wasn't about these religious symbols. The other thing it says is they would lengthen their tassels. That connects to Matthew chapter, or sorry, Numbers chapter 15. I think uh, probably Cody or I will be teaching that in a few weeks as we're going through Numbers on the Old Testament on Wednesday nights. Uh, But in Numbers chapter 15, they're told to wear these tassels on the hem of their garment. And it says that it's supposed to be a reminder for them to follow the commandments of God. And so they have these tassels there. And when they would see them or when they would feel them on their side, as they feel them kind of brushing against them as they walk, it's a reminder for them, follow the commandments, follow the commandments, follow the commandments. Well, the Pharisees, not to be outdone by anybody, they started making their tassels longer and longer and longer and longer. And again, people would walk by and go, wow. Look at the tassels on the guy's garment there. He must be good at following the commandments of God. But all that was done to get other people to look at them. I don't think for a minute that God looked down from heaven and said, huh, that guy's got a giant phylactery and really long tassels. He must really love me. 
No, God looks at their actions. He looks at what's behind them, their motivation and their heart. And as we see here, their motivation was to be noticed by men. He explains that a little more here in verses 6 and 7. They love the place of honor at banquets, the chief seats in the synagogues, respectful greetings in the marketplace, and being called rabbi by men. They just want to be recognized. They want to be lifted up in the eyes of other people instead of just living out the things of God and seeing what God does with that, regardless of what anybody else thinks of them, but just bringing it up as an act of worship to God. I think we do have to kind of watch ourselves in that sometimes. I think we have a tendency to, um, you know, these things aren't in and of themselves bad. I don't think this is bad right? Uh, But I think of it in these terms, like all the Christian t-shirts that we have out there with all the nice verses on them. I like some of those t-shirts, but those things better be representing what's going on in your heart. They shouldn't be about telling everybody else, like, this is the evidence that I'm a Christian. I got a verse on my shirt. No, live as a Christian. Live that verse out. You become the living word of God, right? So it's not wrong to have those things on your shirt, but you better match them up with your life. Uh, the other example, I think, is the, the crosses. I'm not opposed to wearing crosses. I used to wear one uh, when I was younger. Uh, but that was all ruined for me when rappers got a hold of them. Because they start wearing these big old gold chains, and they've got these crosses like this big, look like the guys have to walk like this because it's so heavy. Of course, the world would look at that. Man, they must really love God. The bigger the cross, the more they love God, right? No, it was a mockery of the things of God. They didn't really love God. At issue there was the desire to be recognized, and that's what the Pharisees had going on. They just wanted to be recognized. Uh, Jesus is going to riff on that point just a little bit here in verses 8 through 12. He says, Do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, and you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. Do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. But the greatest among you shall be your servant." Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. The real title that we're supposed to be aiming for is the title of servant. Uh, Look at these different titles here. We've got rabbi, which just means teacher. But what Jesus points out is there's really only one who's your teacher, and that is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And then there is Father... But we truly only have, in the kingdom of God, one who is really your father, and that's God the Father. And then as far as leaders, he says in verse 10, there's only one who is your leader, and that is Christ. Now look, I don't think this is saying you absolutely can't ever call anybody father. You can't absolutely ever call somebody a leader. That's not what it's saying. But what it's saying to the Pharisees and to the people who Jesus is discipling up, don't pursue those titles. Pursuit of those titles misses the point. And anyone who attains those titles has to recognize that they're subordinate to the real teacher, to the real father, to the real leader, to God. The title that we should be pursuing is servant. And how do you get the title of servant? By serving people. That's how you get the title. 
As you serve people, people will recognize you as a servant. It's the only title that we should strive for. It's the only one we should be looking for. And that's where he repeats now, I think for the third time in the Gospel of Matthew, whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, but whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. As you humble yourself to servant letter level, God will be the one who will draw attention to you, whether here on earth or certainly in heaven as he rewards us for our works. So when we pick it up now in verse 13, uh, there's a long section there, verse 13 through 33, uh, and it's going to list out uh, seven or eight woes, depending what translation of the Bible you're using. Uh, and those, those woes are going to be all formed in this same way. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. So he's going right at them. He's, he's going to eight times here call the scribes and the Pharisees hypocrites. And he's saying, woe to you, that's designed to be a connection for them to the Old Testament prophets. And the Old Testament prophets, and you can see this pretty clearly uh, as you go through those prophets, but uh, for an example, you could look at Isaiah chapter 5, verse 8 through 23, has a similar section in there where it's like, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. It's that same idea. He's doing the same thing in a way that they would recognize this sounds like one of the Old Testament prophets, Jesus speaking to them. He's presenting himself here as the prophetic word of God but he has this long list of things that he has against him. And again, this is where it was really clear for me to just put my name in there and see how it feels. And if it hurts a little bit, I think that's an area I need to work on. And if it doesn't hurt at all, I think, okay, I must be doing pretty good in that area. That was just a way for me to kind of test myself. Uh, But let's look at these as, as quickly as we can, each one of them. Verse 13, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, Because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Well, the first issue is that the scribes and Pharisees had shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. Of course, they had clearly done that by the rejection of Jesus and trying to convince people of that. Trying to convince people that Jesus wasn't really the Messiah. And as they did that, they were blocking the doorway to the kingdom of heaven. But of course, they couldn't show people to the kingdom of heaven because they weren't a part of the kingdom of heaven. They're not going to be entering in themselves. Now, the second woe in verse 14, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses and for a pretense you make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive greater condemnation. Now, this is the one that's disputed. I said there's either seven or eight, depending on your translation. And uh, what's happened here is, uh, for the longest time, all the translations had eight of them. But as we continue to dig archaeologically, we find older and older and older manuscripts that are closer to the original. And so every once in a while, you'll find a section of Scripture in there that may, we don't know for sure, but may have been added by somebody else. So some translations will just take that out. Because not, they're not convinced it's true. Uh, what mine does in New American Standard, it just puts it in brackets to say this may or may not have been in the original text. But as you read through it, it feels like the rest of it. So at the very least, you can look at it as valuable to just kind of understand here, right? Uh, and what he's trying to say here is this. He, he's saying uh, that they devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Uh, what that makes me think is this, that they will publicly go on and on and on in their prayers about widows They just wouldn't do a thing to help one. Because there's there's nobody watching in that. 
But man, in these public prayers, these long-winded, just drawn-out prayers that go on forever, everybody has to listen to you now. Because you're praying, we got to be quiet, right? So everybody listens to that prayer. And what it reminds me of today, and maybe you guys have been in this circumstance, but I don't know if you've ever like been out with a group of people to dinner, you're out at a restaurant, and somebody is at the table and you say, hey brother, would you pray for our meal? And all of a sudden, they go from their normal voice to like James Earl Jones at the top of their lungs. Lord, we pray for the meal that we have before us today so that everybody in the restaurant can hear them. Well, they're doing that as a show, most likely. They're wanting to be heard by men, not by God. You see, God can hear them no matter what their volume is, right? It's not like God's pretty far away. Maybe I better speak louder. That's not the way God works. Or maybe another way that might come out is, is they pray kind of in the King James English. They sound like they're on Downton Abbey all of a sudden. But Lord, if we thank you for the day that you have prepared for us and the great beef stick in front of us. And Father, as we devour this in your name, please give us the health and the wealth It's a pretense. It's all for appearances. Now, I'm not saying that everybody who kind of changes their tone or prays in that way is necessarily doing it for the wrong reasons. I I literally think there are people that if you grew up on the King James Bible, when you start to pray, you pray like that because you're praying the Word of God, and so it just comes out that way. So I'm not saying that's bad, Uh, and and maybe because they're in a crowded restaurant, they're praying a little louder, and that's, that's fine. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it on its face value, but for these guys, they were doing it just to gain the attention of everybody else. They wanted to be looked at. They wanted to be heard. Verse 15, the next woe. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Well, that elevated quickly, didn't it? You make them twice as much a son of hell as yourselves? As they were trying to convert people to being God-fearers, to being uh, these converted Jews... The problem was, if they're the ones discipling them, the people will become more like them. And since they are destined for hell, their disciples, their many Pharisees, their many me's that follow them around, are going to follow them right into the pits of hell. It's a real danger. And look, to be clear, discipleship is more about teaching people to be like Jesus Christ than he is to be like us. Even as we do it, Paul would say, follow me as I follow Christ. But it seems as if Jesus was looking at these Pharisees and he was saying, man, you guys are trying to make more like you, not more like God. Trying to draw people into your way of doing things instead of drawing people into the way that God would have you do things. Uh, Verse 16 through 22, a little bit longer section here. Woe to you blind guides who say... Whoever swears by the temple, that's nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. You fools and blind men, which is more important, the gold of the temple that sanctified the gold. And whoever swears by the altar, that's nothing. But whoever swears by the offering on it, he's obliged or he's obligated. You blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering. 
Therefore, whoever swears by the altar swears both by the altar and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears both by the temple and by him who dwells within it. And whoever swears by heaven swears both by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. So, it seems as if the Pharisees had created a little bit of a game around the idea of swearing or making oaths before God. And essentially, they'd kind of set up this weird set of rules where if you swear by this thing, it doesn't really count. But if you swear by this thing, you really got to keep that swear. You really got to keep that oath. And they kind of set this up as like a game. Like in the schoolyard back in the day, if somebody dared you, it was like, well, he just dared me. It's not a big deal. I don't have to do it. But if he double dog dares me, now he said the magic words. I got to do this thing. Well, they're kind of playing it out like that. Like you can make oaths before God. But it doesn't really count unless you make the right oath before God. I swear by the gold of the altar. Well, that's a real oath all of a sudden. Now you got to keep your word. And Jesus says, keep your word all the time. He talks about that in the Gospel of Matthew earlier in chapter 5. He says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. You see, there really should be no reason for them to make these different oaths. In this one, you're not obligated. In this one, you are obligated. This is foolishness. This is really just the game of people who don't have consistency in keeping their word. I put it in today's day and age. And what do we do? Well, I would swear by the Bible. I swear on my mother's grave. I swear to heaven and I swear to God. We throw all of these different things on there as if all of a sudden my word becomes more important because I swore on this thing. If you want people to trust your word, just do the things you promised to do. Just do those things and then you don't have to swear by anything. If you say you're going to do something, just do it. That's as simple as it's intended to be. But they had turned this into a game. They had kind of created their own system of swearing, of making oaths, of making promises, where they weren't always required to follow through. Verse 23, the next woe. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Well, he calls them hypocrites here. And he's talking about the way in which they fulfill the Old Testament law. And he's going to use two examples. The one is the idea of tithing on their spice jars. And then the other is this picture of, uh, he's going to picture this by saying, in doing that, you're, you're, you're avoiding eating the unclean gnat. You're not allowed to eat that in the Old Testament. But in the process, you're rejecting bigger things like justice, mercy, and faithfulness, which is like eating a camel, which is also unclean. You're not allowed to eat those. That's what he's saying it's like. He's saying it's like, like when you take and do the littlest thing, but you don't do the big things, it really doesn't matter that you did the little thing anymore. So he uses this picture of tithing. And so if you can envision the Pharisee going to the spice store, he buys a spice. Let's say he comes home with dill and he gets out on his counter and he pours all the dill out and he starts separating it out. This is easier for me to envision if it's, if it's dill pickles just because they're bigger, right? 
But just imagine getting your dill pickle jar from the grocery store and you start pulling them out. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine for me and one for God. Separating, they're, they're tithing. It's an Old Testament principle, right? But they're rejecting more important things like justice and mercy and faithfulness. Now, God doesn't tell them that they shouldn't tie. That's not what he's telling them there. He says to them, you should have done that and the weightier things and the more important things. Now, this is the one that actually kind of struck the accord with me. Now, uh, just as a side note, I've talked about this before, but I think I need to talk about it whenever it comes up. Uh, this is actually the only time in Scripture is in this uh, conversation in the New Testament where, where it ever talks about tithing. I believe tithing was an Old Testament concept. In the New Testament, we're told to give a free will offering, which means you give what you can give joyously. And if you can't give it joyously, don't give it at all. That's kind of the New Testament concept there. But we can get into that discussion a whole other time. If you want to have that discussion, that would be great. But what, what's going on here is these guys living under the Old Testament law, they're under this requirement to do these things, right? And so they're doing those small things, those little things. They're not doing the big things, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And this is the one that, to me hit home. I started thinking about how easy it is for me to get caught up in all the little details of things and be too busy searching out all the little details of every little thing in the Word and never actually getting around to doing anything about it. And then when it comes to something big, I'm like, well, I'm awful busy right now. I'm trying to decipher Numbers chapter 10. You see how that kind of plays out in your heart. So this is the way I read it. Woe to you, Sean, you hypocrite. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and neglect the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. I even love the way he worded this. The three things that he picks there, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Now, faithfulness makes total sense to us, right? We all want to be faithful towards God. That was obviously an issue that the Pharisees had. But I love that he combines justice and mercy because they're opposites. Justice says you get exactly what you deserve. Mercy says you don't get what you deserve. But both are required by the law, and both of those things are weightier than these ceremonial things. These administrative things that the Pharisees were focused on. They're so focused on the ceremonial, on the administrative, that they are missing the most important, the heavier things, the weightier things of the law. Justice and mercy and faithfulness. These should be the things that would come out of us. These should be important, not to the neglect of those other things, but don't do all the little things and never do the important things. And that was the issue that the Pharisees had there. You know, all of this kind of reminds me of, uh, of the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. And I'm just going to read this to you because I think it's so powerful. Uh, Isaiah chapter 29. It's such a powerful scripture. I, I've ad-libbed it for years and I kind of halfway get it right and halfway get it wrong. Uh, so I'm just going to read it to you. It says this. Because this people draw near me with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts from me, and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. They were in the habit 
of doing certain religious things. But they weren't doing those religious things because they had a heart for God. It's that motivation. And if they had a heart for God, they would have a heart for the things that God has a heart for, which is justice and mercy and faithfulness. Not to neglect the other things God has asked us to do, but we give the proper weight to these things as God does. And it's all throughout the Old Testament, by the way. As you read through the Old Testament prophets, what was the thing that over and over came up? Why God was judging Israel? Because of the miscarriage of justice. Because they were mistreating widows and orphans and, and, and uh, foreigners in the land. All of those things were tied up in the retribution that God was bringing to the nation of Israel. Justice is important to God. Mercy is important to God. Faithfulness is important to God. The next woe in verse 25, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they're full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish, so that the outside of it may become clean also. Now, Jesus isn't worried about how they did the dishes here. This wasn't like, your house cleaning's a mess, you hypocritical Pharisees. He's using this as a word picture to identify how he sees them. He sees them as somebody who has cleaned up the outside, but they're full of darkness on the inside. They're full of uncleanness on the inside. Uh, what, what he would be saying is he would say, you're the dirty cup. Now, now think, this is basically every coffee, coffee cup in America, right? Like you get this nice, beautiful white coffee cup, and then you start using it every day for coffee, and before long, it's just brown on the inside, but you shine the outside up real nice. You're just never getting that brown out of there. That's kind of the picture to me. Uh, listen, it's, 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 it says what he even filled the cup with. They filled the cup up with robbery and self-indulgence. They were stealing from the people of God. And they were doing it all for their own selfish indulgence so they could receive for themselves. Their motivation was all selfish, to be noticed by men, to receive for themselves. That was the motivation in their religious activity. It wasn't because they had a heart for God. It wasn't because they loved God. And so I can see it this way. The new taste of the month next month from Starbucks is going to be robbery and self-indulgence, right? Look, this is the question. What is it that you're filling yourself with? It's the old adage, garbage in, garbage out. And you can clean up the outside as much as you want. But if you're filling yourself full of garbage, garbage will come out in your life. And it happens over and over and over again. It's actually one of the questions I ask people sometimes when I'm counseling. And they tell me that they've got all this stuff going on in their life and nothing's going right. I'm like, what do you fill yourself with? What do you fill yourself? Are you just filling yourself with garbage all day or in most cases all night long when you should be sleeping? Early on in our marriage, Sheila and I had this deal that we used to do because we didn't feel like we were investing enough in the word. And so we would be like, it'd be get to like the end of the day and we're like, we haven't even opened our Bibles and now we're tired. So we would like try to open the Bible and then we would just like, oh, I'm so exhausted. We'd just be done with it. So we came up with this new thing that we did back in the day. We don't do it anymore. Uh, but back in the day, we actually put on the TV uh, a sticker that said, have you read your Bible today? And the whole idea was, I'm not turning that box on until I've opened this book. That I was going to fill myself with good stuff. And that was kind of the idea there. It's the same concept. He's going to say it in a little bit different way here in verse 27. Uh, the, the next woe. 
Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You're like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So the next illustration isn't a dirty cup, but he says you go to any tomb in a gravesite, you can paint that tomb however you want. You can put all kinds of fancy stuff on the outside. You could adorn it with gold and all kinds of cool things. But it doesn't change the fact that there's a dead person inside that tomb. And he says to them, that's who you are. You're pretty on the outside, but you are dead inside. So adding to this robbery and self-indulgence from the previous illustration, he now adds to that hypocrisy and lawlessness. That's who they are. That's what's filling them on the inside. They're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness and robbery and self-indulgence. And it's why they don't have a heart for God. Verse 29 will bring our last woe. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had been living in those days, uh, in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? Well, he's going to reuse that phrase from John the Baptist. We saw it in Matthew chapter 3 where he's going to call these guys uh, the brood of vipers, the serpents again. So that's kind of a nice throwback to John, but it's at the perfect time. Uh, the issue that he has with them here is uh, they have set up all of these tombs and they've set up these monuments of the Old Testament prophets so that people can go and say, look at this great man of God. Well, what they would do is they would know the history of their people was those prophets spoke to the nation of Israel and then the nation of Israel oftentimes would beat, imprison, or kill those prophets. They rejected the teaching of those prophets. That's why the nation of Israel went into the Babylonian captivity. That's why the nation of Israel was scattered by the Assyrians, because they rejected the Old Testament prophets. That's why God had to bring judgment on them. What these Pharisees are saying, they're saying, hey, just so you know, if I'd have been alive back then, things would have been different. I would have never done the things that our forefathers did. So Jesus says, that's fine. Build up, mount up the guilt of your fathers. But it really does kind of show the hypocrisy in them as they were the ones who confronted John the Baptist, who Jesus quotes here. Remember, when John the Baptist was preaching, they were confronting him. And even now, as Jesus preaches, they're confronting him. God has sent them prophets, and they have rejected those prophets. John the Baptist, by the way, is going to be put to death by their king, King Herod. And Jesus, right now, they're in the process of plotting to destroy him. We found that out in Matthew 12. The Pharisees were designing to destroy Jesus. And then in Matthew chapter 21, they were looking for a way to seize him. They were in the process of planning to kill Jesus. And yet they pretend that they would have been any different in a previous generation. 
Well, this is kind of this thing that happens in our world today where we look at the other generations and they say they had it all wrong. Why can't they be more like our generation? So you get this kind of fighting, this infighting that says we somehow are a special group. We're a special group. And so on one hand, you have this group of people that looks down at all the younger generations. Well, back in my day, we did it better. Not like those millennials, not like those Gen Xers. We weren't like those kids. We had real values back then. Now, those things might have been true, but if those values weren't based in the fact that you loved God, it's irrelevant. It's just for show. It's just for societal improvement, but it doesn't make you any better than them. Or even the younger generation that looks at the old generation, okay, boomer, pitting the generation against each other. But here's the deal. People are people. There is no special group or special generation of people. Each one of us is sinful. And it's been like that throughout history. And in similar circumstances, most people would have made similar choices. That's just the reality. So what Jesus is going to do is he's going to allow them to see this illustration in their own life. Uh, Verse 34, he says, Therefore, so that's in response to this idea, Behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berchiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation." So previously, they were blaming the fathers for all the sins of the nation of Israel and saying, we wouldn't do that. So Jesus says in 32, fine, fill up the measure of the guilt of your fathers. But he's now going to be continuing to send prophets to that generation of people. And he says in this case, that when those prophets come, he's telling these guys, you're going to kill and crucify them. You're going to scourge them in your synagogues and you're going to persecute them from city to city because you don't love God. That was the issue with them, at the heart of all of this. Their love was the praise of men not to worship their God. That's all it came down to. And we can see how that actually plays out historically because we have the gospel at the end here where Jesus is put to death. And then we have the book of Acts where all his disciples are going to be persecuted over and over, imprisoned and beaten. And the apostle Paul was imprisoned and beaten and died and came back again and went back into the city and started preaching again. This is just who they were. Why are they doing these things? Because they don't truly love God. So they can't hear God's word when it's being brought by God's prophets. They can't recognize it. At the heart of all of this is this desire, this need for us to love God. I think what's powerful is he uses a couple of illustrations here. One of them is clear to us, uh, the other one not so clear. But he's got these two illustrations of, of, of righteous blood that was shed on the earth. The first one is the blood of righteous Abel. Well, righteous Abel takes us back to Genesis chapter 4, those first eight verses there. You guys recall the story of Cain and Abel. They both brought sacrifices to God. Abel brought a worthy sacrifice. Cain brought an unworthy sacrifice. And so God doesn't accept Cain's sacrifice, and Cain gets all grumpy about it. And so God speaks to Cain. Think about that. 
God, God speaks to Cain who brought an unworthy sacrifice and he tells them, if you would do well, your countenance would be lifted up. If you do well, I will change your attitude. Your circumstances will get better if you do well. So it tells us there, and this is the part that I think I've missed in the past, it tells us that then Cain goes and tells Abel what God just said. If I do well, my countenance will be lifted up. And it's in that same verse, it says, then Cain killed Abel. He heard the word of God, the voice of God, and yet he still murdered one of the people of God. And ultimately, out of jealousy, God accepted his sacrifice, but not mine. Man. The next example is a guy by the name of Zechariah. We're not entirely clear who he is. We have a couple of Zechariahs in the Bible, uh, but this one is called Zechariah, the son of Berchiah. The other guys have different daddies, so they can't be the same Zechariah. So there's a question on who this guy is. But Jesus gives us enough context that apparently uh, these Pharisees would have known this. But there was a guy by the name of Zechariah, the son of Berchiah whom was murdered between the temple and the altar, murdered in the most holy place. So that whole thou shalt not kill thing, I guess, doesn't really count in that circumstance, right? He's just saying, man, look around you. Apart from a heart from God or a heart for God, you will do the same things that every generation before you did. When you reject God and you reject the things of God, you will continue down the path that we've seen happen over and over and over and over again. Jesus finishes up this chapter by lamenting over Jerusalem, by crying out and mourning. In verse 37, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, The way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The reality is that Jesus was there for the very purpose of drawing his people into himself. And he uses that wonderful picture of of a mother hen gathering her chicks under her wings, bringing protection and gathering them in. But he says of these religious leaders and maybe of the nation of Israel, but in a general sense of the religious leaders, you were just unwilling. You just rejected my call to you. And so he lets them know that their house is going to be left desolate. Now that's going to be literally fulfilled in 70 A.D., When Jerusalem is going to be sacked by the Romans, they're going to tear apart that city and that temple stone by stone. Completely left desolate there. They're going to actually get to see that, some of these people, within a 40-year span. Some of the people that he's actually speaking to are going to be able to realize that, or certainly their children would at that point. But I love kind of how he ties all of this together. Uh, you, you might not have caught this right away, but in verse 37 here, this Jerusalem, Jerusalem, those who kill the prophets and, and uh, are sent to this same thing is said by Jesus in the, in the gospel of Luke as he enters Jerusalem on the triumphal entry. It says he wept over the city. And then he says it again here at the end of this confrontation with the Pharisees. He says the same thing twice. Once as he comes into Jerusalem and now at the end of his confrontation with the Pharisees, right? He says it twice. 
But here's what's great about it. He follows in both cases. We see this psalm, Psalm 118, verse 26, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You see at the beginning of this in chapter 21, at the day of the triumphal entry, as Jesus was coming into the city of Jerusalem, all the crowds started singing, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And it was when the Pharisees heard that, that they freaked out and they said, you need to rebuke your disciples because they recognized that as a messianic proclamation that the people were declaring Jesus the Messiah and the Pharisees were upset about this. So that's why they're so angry with Jesus because he's claiming and now the people believe that he's the Messiah. And so Jesus ends this confrontation with them by saying, you're not going to see me again until... You yourselves say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, for some of them, that might happen through repentance. We'll actually find out that after the resurrection of Jesus, some of the Pharisees are going to come to Christ. They're going to come to a believing knowledge of him. But for the rest, this will happen at the end of time, where you'll see this great revival in the nation of Israel. We saw that a few months back when we were going through the book of Revelation. Who am I kidding? Maybe that was a year ago. We've been in Matthew for a while. But a while back in the, in the book of Revelation, where we were going through that, this great uh, coming forward of evangelism where Jews start getting saved, they start to believe in Jesus, and then they will see the coming of the Lord, the second coming of Jesus Christ. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which is a great transition, by the way, into chapter 24. This uh, allusion to the end times isn't just a bookmark to those teachings, but what you'll find here, or not a bookmark, a bookend to those teachings, what you're going to find here is the next chapter then, the next two chapters, Jesus starts answering questions about the end times. So all of this is leading in together. It's one of the great things that we have here. So uh, as we end this, I just want you guys to be kind of thinking through the terms uh, of this passage. Think about those big lessons. Number one, what motivates you to worship God? Is it because you love God or is it because you want something out of the deal? That you want the praise of other people? Is it even real the things you do for God or is it just fake and hypocrisy? Do you get your emphasis on the wrong things? I like to say it this way. Uh, Do you have the emphasis on the wrong syllable? Right? Instead of the wrong syllable. Is your emphasis on the wrong syllable? Are you focusing on the wrong things and missing the greater things that God would have for you? We need to look at the word and use it as a mirror to examine ourselves. And when we find that we have hypocrisy, we confess it and we repent. You see, hypocrisy is the deal that struggles, that causes people outside of the church to struggle with Christianity. They look at the hypocrisy. Now, I don't think it's all real. I think there's a big portion of the view of Christianity that's just, uh, it happens kind of, there's a couple ways this happens. One way is this. Uh, You have somebody who claims to be a Christian but really isn't, and they don't act like a Christian. And the world looks at this person who does unchristian things, who claims to be a Christian. They say, see, look at this. Here's just another Christian. All you Christians are the same. Okay, well, number one, that's not truth. Just because... One or even a handful of Christians do sinful things doesn't mean that Christianity as a whole is hypocritical. Here's the second piece of this, though. Some Christians pretty new at this stuff. 
they're still trying to figure it out. When I first came to Jesus Christ, I didn't have any of it figured out. It takes time. We're progressively becoming more like Jesus Christ. We're not there yet. What sometimes the world misses is it takes time to conform to the image of Jesus. And they don't have the patience for that. So again, there is real hypocrisy, but sometimes it's just born out of ignorance. Sometimes it's mislabeled. Now, the offensive hypocrisy is those who should do better, who should know better, and yet they don't. And even more hypocritical to me, not just that they sin, because I think ultimately we're all going to sin, it's that when they sin, they double down on it and they defend it instead of confessing it and repenting. Root out the hypocrisy, the uncleanness, the death, the robbery and the self-indulgence, the lawlessness that's in your heart. And when you see those things, confess those things and be forgiven of those things. God will cleanse you of all your sins and make you righteous. Amen? Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, so thankful for your word and uh, just really enjoy uh, preaching the words of Jesus. Lord, there's so much power in the things that he says. Lord, I'm thankful that you recorded these things for us. Father, I would pray for each one of us today that your Holy Spirit would begin to reveal to us the areas of hypocrisy, the areas of sin that we need to be working on for myself and for everybody else here. Lord, that we wouldn't be just about receiving more knowledge today, but we would receive knowledge for the purpose of changing who we are of becoming more like you desire us to be. Lord, I pray that we would be continually be refined by you. Father, I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.